Today, we have two special guests with us from McGuire Woods. We have Jason Christensen, who's an associate at McGuire Woods and works in the antitrust group. And we have Amy Gilbert, who is a senior associate at McGuire Woods, who also works in the antitrust group. Jason and Amy will be discussing the 13th annual ABA International Cartel Workshop with us today. McGuire Woods was one of the hosts of the workshop that took place in San Francisco last week. So we are excited to have you guys here. Excited to be here. Thank you. From Loyola University Chicago School of Law, this is The Podvocate. We're law students exploring the vanguard of the legal world with experts from our backyard and beyond. Subscribe to The Podvocate wherever you get your podcasts. Jason, why don't you start off by telling us a little bit about yourself and how you got involved in antitrust work? Yeah. Um, so like Haley said, I'm a senior associate in the antitrust and commercial litigation department at McGuire Woods. Um, I was a summer associate during law school in 2013, um, and I joined as an associate in 2014. And though I largely chose the antitrust department based on the people in the group and the mentorship opportunities, I was sold on a pitch that was given to me during my summer that it was important to specialize if you wanted to be a litigator. So I had had original interest in just being a commercial litigator and I had not given much thought to what that would look like. But as you'll find, you know, once you graduate law school and get out into the working world, there are industries in law just like there are industries in business and everything else you do. And it's important to have an expertise because of course that's what makes clients keep you top of mind. Um, So while it may be difficult for a client to recall Amy Gilbert, commercial litigator who does you know, runs the gamut of things she specializes in a little bit more. um, It's more readily accessible to have top of mind when you specialize in something. So Amy Gilbert, the antitrust litigator. Um, So largely I was sold on the specialty of antitrust um, and I went that direction with the ability to still gain the commercial litigation skills and do some general commercial litigation work as well. And then when Jason was an associate in 2016, I, I gave him that same pitch. That's right. I, I was essentially, well, I'll back up. First and foremost, I think whatever line of work, whatever specialty you get involved with, you have to like the people that you work with. And we're lucky that I, I really do enjoy the people that I work with on a day-to-day basis. Even if you love the work that you're doing, if you're with a group of attorneys or coworkers who are miserable to be around, it's going to make you hate that specialization. So that was really my number one priority going into my summer was making sure I landed in a group with people that I enjoyed. Um, and I've also been very fortunate that I actually do really enjoy antitrust work as a subset of commercial litigation more generally. Um, I think the thing that really inspired me to get involved with it was just how big and complicated these cases can be. Um, and I think that does two things that's really interesting. First, it allows you to really learn a business backwards and forwards. Um, in order to be an antitrust lawyer, you have to be willing to understand from the C-suite all the way down to the day-to-day hourly employees how a business works because you have to understand the economics of everything involved. Um, So that's the first piece of it. The second piece of it that I really like is because the cases are so big and they tend to lurch along pretty slowly sometimes. I mean, they can take four, five, six, seven years to complete. uh, You really get to get in and learn the details and watch a litigation unfold really slowly 
and develop a very deep understanding of every single element or excuse me stage of litigation whether it's drafting a drafting a complaint motion to dismiss discovery summary judgment all the way up to trial um, you you're there for a, a much longer period of time than you might be otherwise okay great well why don't we start off by um, allowing both of you to describe the workshop generally in a few sentences matt and i were joking when we were doing research for this episode that when we were typing in international cartel into the Google machine, it was always drug cartels. And usually when people think of cartels, like my grandmother, for example, she thinks of Pablo Escobar. So obviously this is not the type of work that you two are involved in. But for the listeners that are probably not experts in antitrust um, litigation, tell us kind of an overview about what the workshop is. Your grandma is not wrong. Um, It's not a drug cartel, but any cartel is a gathering of people who have agreed or conspired to do something illegal. So, you know, Pablo Escobar conspired to do something illegal with regard to drugs. An antitrust criminal cartel is a group of competitors or businesses in the same industry or marketplace that have agreed to do something that violates the antitrust laws. The International Cartel Workshop is an interactive workshop hosted by the antitrust section of the American Bar Association. So you may know as law students that the ABA or the Chicago Bar Association um, recruits you to become involved in their sections. Some sections of the ABA are more active than others, the antitrust section being one of the most active section, in part because it's a small bar. There aren't a swath of attorneys who do antitrust law. It is really um, specialized, That which means that the, the bar is much smaller, and then the networking opportunities and the workshops that they put on are really well attended because that's your opportunity to see everyone in the bar. This workshop takes place every other year and is hosted in a different city across the globe. Um, just to give you an idea, in 2012, it was in Vancouver, Rome in 2014, Tokyo in 2016, Paris in 2018, and San Francisco in 2020. Um, and the reason for the international presence is because antitrust criminal cartels have international presence. Just to give you a high-level overview of the things that are discussed, like I said, antitrust laws generally promote fair competition amongst businesses and in the marketplace. And relating to criminal cartel work, some antitrust laws are enforced criminally, so they can be enforced civilly, and you'll have private lawsuits about that. Um, But some of the antitrust laws are enforced criminally, and these would be things like price fixing or market allocation. And Jason and I can talk a little bit more about that. And so where the cartel piece comes in is when a group of competitors or businesses in the marketplace form some sort of agreement, whether formal or informal, to fix prices in their industry or with a particular product, or they decide to allocate markets and things like that. So this workshop, um, and I'll let Jason kind of explain the format of the workshop and McGuire Woods' specific involvement in it, but this workshop is to give you antitrust practitioners who are long in the tooth and have been doing this a long time, or new antitrust associates and practitioners who are just kind of getting into criminal cartel work and taking you through like the nuts and bolts of a criminal investigation, an investigation into a criminal cartel, I should say. That's right. So as Amy mentioned, the, the way that this workshop works is it it's intended to be a demonstration of from the beginnings of one of these cartels being hatched or 
forming all the way up through, in some, some years, the, the trial of that cartel itself. Um, so let's take, for example, a product that might land in a number of different countries. Maybe it's a, we'll just say, a, a microchip that goes into your cell phone. Well, those are going to be manufactured by a number of different companies. There's going to be companies in the U.S. that make those, companies in Europe that make those, companies in Japan that make those. And let's just say hypothetically, the CEOs of all those different companies, the Japanese company, the European company, and the American company were to get together and say, guys, look, we're competing with each other, our prices keep going up, we're trying to outsell each other, let's just do this. I'm only going to sell in Japan. You're only going to sell in the United States, and I'm only going to sell in Europe. And also, we're all only going to charge $1 for this product. Well, what, what they've just done is two things. They've allocated the market, and they've fixed the price. And in many jurisdictions, including the U.S., as well as a number in you know, South America, Japan, Australia, Europe, that's either going to be a civil violation of the law, or it might also be a criminal violation of the law. In the United States, that could be, you can be criminally liable both as a company and as an individual and you could possibly go to jail. So when these sort of things unfold, eventually somebody gets wind of it. Now maybe it's one of these government enforcers, Department of Justice, the European Commission, uh, KJ in Colombia. So while Pablo Escobar wasn't there, we did have Colombian enforcers at this event. Um, somebody gets wind of it. Or maybe... He's dead, but yeah. <laughs> he, that's true. It would, it would have been exciting <laughs> to see him there. But, uh, so either one of those enforcers gets wind of it or perhaps the company gets wind of it. When that happens, a couple of things can happen. If it's the enforcers getting wind of it, they might launch an investigation. If the company gets wind of it, they have to come to a decision. That decision is usually, do we just sit on this and hope nobody ever finds out? Or do we go in and seek something called leniency? Leniency is something that the DOJ and many of these other jurisdictions have set up that basically provide a bit of a get-out-of-jail-free card for these companies, where, for lack of a better term, if you go in and snitch on the conspiracy, you can get off scot-free and potentially save yourself hundreds of millions of dollars in fines and potential jail time. But in coming to that decision, you have to go through a really hard analysis of what's the likelihood that this comes to light, how much time and money are we going to have to spend providing this cooperation to the government, what other governments do we maybe need to go and self-report to. So it becomes a very convoluted process, and you have to weigh up many of these competing pros and cons in so doing. So what the workshop does is go from, and I mentioned this briefly earlier, the beginnings of that cartel, the discovery of the problematic conduct, you get to listen in as defense counsel decides what are we gonna do here, you might see a negotiation between defense counsel and these enforcers all the way up into, in some cases, the trial itself. So instead of panels just talking at you, explaining how things would work, it's an actual hypothetical role play. So think mock trial. It's, it's mock meetings with defense counsel. It's the mock meeting where things are decided, the agreement is made, things like that. So you're watching it as if it's happening, and we can explain more about that later, but that's, the, that's really the interesting hook about this conference. You'll, you'll find that most conferences are just panel after panel talking at you. This really truly is like you're watching it unfold live. Jason, you mentioned how 
you know, there's really the one of two ways that this could come to light. One being the enforcers find out, or two, the company finds out. Um, can you clarify what you mean by when the company finds out? I mean, if they're presumably they're taking the affirmative step to enter into this agreement with other organizations. So, are you saying, you know, CFO does it and CEO doesn't know, or the board doesn't know what the CEO is doing, kind of thing? Sure, and, and I should be clear that there's, it's more than just those two ways. That's probably the two most common examples. But when when I talk about the company determining that there was some sort of problematic conduct, um, it comes up. Well, l- let me back up. First off, people sometimes don't even know what they're doing is a violation of the antitrust laws. They might just think it's good business practices or they're in a gentleman's agreement. Um, one thing we see a lot of these days are no poach agreements, which is an agreement between two right. companies not to take each other's employees. A lot of people we found don't even recognize that that could potentially be an antitrust violation and something that the DOJ has said, we're going to throw somebody in jail for this sort of stuff. Um, so some people, sometimes people just don't even know that they're getting into a problematic agreement. Now, the way that it's usually discovered is sometimes it pops up during antitrust compliance training where somebody like McGuire Woods will go in and describe ways for a company to avoid problematic antitrust activity and somebody puts their hand up and says, well, what about this? And then an internal investigation gets <laughs> launched. Uh, sometimes it is... sheepishly asking for a friend, just to, <laughs> not merely us. You, you would be surprised. Um, sometimes it, it's a situation where, yeah, it's, it's just the C-suite executives doing something behind closed doors and, and not tipping off the rest of their company, and then maybe it gets leaked, something like that. Um, or you see it in merger reviews sometimes. So in the United States and other jurisdictions, if two companies are merging and the merger is a large enough dollar value, then you have to turn over a number of documents to the government. And either when you're reviewing those documents to turn them over, you discover problematic emails or communication, or maybe the government does. So there's a number of ways these sort of things can bubble up and trigger that, oh my goodness, we have a problem here. Can we go in and seek leniency? And that's funny that you raised that, because that was one of my questions as I was going through my research, which was, you know, how often are there instances where, as you said, company is engaging in what it thinks is sound business practice uh, as a way to strengthen its business position, and then at some point, unbeknownst to it, crosses over into, you know, anti-competitive practices. You know, how, in, in your experiences and, and, and in your own kind of education and background in this, how often, in terms of 100% of the cases that you're aware of, how often is it that organizations are colluding in order to corner the market, and how often are people just kind of stumbling into this? I think it's hard to quantify that. Um, I think that you'll find the majority of the time they are the companies are recognizing after the fact that what they've agreed to do or the conduct that, or the activity that they're participating in is running afoul to the antitrust laws. And I think the reason for that is what Jason alluded to is that the antitrust laws aren't intuitive. It's not like everyone goes to business school and learns. What they learn is how to maximize profits, maximize revenue, those sorts of things. And things like market allocation or price fixing can enhance your business in a, in a very profitable way. Um, and so someone who's running the company at the top might not know that, but certainly, you know, your lower level, lower level employees who are just tasked with sales. Think about all the industries where there are sales guys in every single region. 
they are motivated by increasing their sales and therefore increasing the revenue and the profitability of the company. And oftentimes we'll do whatever makes good business sense to do that, even if it's ultimately anti-competitive. Um, so I would say that to, to answer your question, I would say the majority of the time, um, but there are also instances where um, the agreements are a little bit more explicit. And that brings us to another point we should mention. I think when we think about a cartel forming in other instances, the illegality of what you're doing is very obvious, and two, the agreement is very explicit. Um, you know, so if the four of us were entering into an agreement to do something illegal, um, I think a lot of people think that we've sat in a room in an undisclosed location and we're signing some sort of nefarious document that memorializes our agreement. That's, that's not how it happens oftentimes. Now let's say the four of us work in the same industry. We work in this microchip industry that goes into your cell phone industry. We meet, you know, semi-annually at a conference. We all enjoy each other's company and we're going out for a few beers. Next thing you know, we're chatting about how business is and you know I'm thinking about I'm thinking about going up to a dollar 25 this um this quarter what do you think about that Haley and Haley saying oh if you do 20 if you do a dollar 25 then my company could for sure do a dollar 25 next thing you know next quarter price list comes out and Haley and I's companies are both at 125 and Jason's company is not far is not far behind and he's going to fall in line with that suddenly we've created this understanding that we would do what each other does so that no one would be at a disadvantage. The people that are at a disadvantage are the consumers because now they unnecessarily have to pay 125 across the board when in a truly freely competitive market, my company would have made that decision totally independent of Haley and Jason's company, but now, but now we're setting, we're setting an, um, an artificial price, basically, and they don't get the benefit of price competition. But all of that could have happened over a few beers, you know, at a trade association conference or something like that. And it, and it wasn't it wasn't that I had it wasn't necessarily the um, situation that I dreamed this up and thought I'm going to get Haley and Jason involved and I'm going to get them to agree to this. It, it very well may have come up um, in a very informal matter. And part of this gray area of is there a clear agreement here has there been a clear violation of the antitrust laws is something that weighs into your decision when you're trying to determine am I going to go in and get leniency for my client an important thing that I should have mentioned earlier is leniency is only available for the first person through the door so what will happen is you'll be at one of these antitrust compliance trainings where somebody raises their hand and says, what about this? And very quickly, the company has to make a decision of, okay, we have to be the first one in if there's something problematic here. We have to do as fast of an internal investigation as we possibly can. We could potentially miss out on millions and millions of dollars that we would otherwise be fined. But the thing that you have to do when you're going in as a leniency applicant is you have to perfect your leniency markers. So essentially what you'll do is you'll call up the DOJ, ask if leniency is available, they'll say yes or no. If the answer is yes, it's then incumbent upon you to go in and more or less give the DOJ the whole story of what happened. If it's an instance where Amy and I got together over beers, wrote down we're going to get involved in an antitrust conspiracy on a piece of paper and I have that piece of paper, that's pretty easy. But if it's a situation where it is a little bit more tricky and it's hard to prove up and it's going to take you know, 
interview after interview and tons of document production in order to prove that an illegal conspiracy was hatched, that makes it a lot harder for you to go into the DOJ as the leniency applicant and, and kind of lay it out all out for them. Um, so part of what the ICW does is let you sit in on those discussions and see the inner workings of these long in the tooth antitrust professionals uh, who've done this a number of times. For the instances where the um, violators are not seeking leniency, where the enforcers are the ones actively going after it, how often is it the case where they're able to see, like you mentioned, you know, back of a cocktail napkin from the conference, we uh, expressly agree to enter into this nefarious plot versus you don't have any kind of that documentation and how much can the enforcers go off of it looks like a duck, quacks like a duck, you can make that leap to the three of you must have agreed to go to a dollar twenty-five given the circumstances. Yeah, I, I think it's tough without being the enforcers ourselves to see say how successful they've been on it. But we have certain keywords that we tell people: don't use these in email. Gentlemen's agreement, good business practice. There's there's certain things that people tend to say when they're getting involved in this sort of stuff that perks up the ears, both of us and I'm assuming the plaintiffs bar. I'm assuming the enforcers as well. Um, and you can, through a course of conduct, make a pretty strong inference that if it walks like a duck, quacks like a duck, it probably is a duck. I think in short, I think that these cases are often proved up by circumstance, circumstantial evidence. You know, if, if, if for the months leading up to our meeting over our hangout over beers at the conference we all had different prices and there was obvious price competition in this industry and then after that you know and i and i go in for leniency and i say yeah it was around uh february 2020 where haley jason and i got together and talked about this and then from that moment on the circumstantial evidence shows that every quarter from then on we were doing the same prices i, I think even if you don't have evidence of the meeting, like the actual meeting of the minds, I think that's circumstantial evidence of the same. I realize that we didn't really give you a backdrop on the leniency program, and we've, we've touched a bit on the requirements, but I think it's just helpful and kind of highlights why this is such an interesting area to work in. So the leniency policy, and I'm looking at it here, you can get it on the Department of Justice's webpage. In order to get leniency, or as Jason called it, like the get out of jail free card. And this is leniency with a capital L. This is not like just a <clears throat> colloquial, oh, we'll reduce the sentence kind of thing. This is a, Absolutely. a legit program. This is a legit program that was instituted over 20 years ago, I believe sometime in the 90s, and it's mm -hmm. remained the same since then. So this is leniency with a capital L, like Department of Justice corporate leniency policy is what I'm reading off my page. And there are six main factors. One, like Jason said, the DOJ has to not already be aware of the conduct. And that's this whole piece of you have to be the first ones to tell them. And I'll, get, I'll follow up on that in a second. Number two, the company has to have ended its involvement in the activity. It can't still be charging $1.25 and or agreeing to set the same prices as Haley and Jason and call themselves out. You have to have said, we're done with the conduct. Three, the company has to provide its full cooperation. We could probably have an entire podcast on what full cooperation means, and we can. I'll give you a little bit about how that looks in practice. Going in for leniency has to be a truly corporate act, meaning 
I can't come to the DOJ and be like, hey, I'm, I'm a salesperson who's responsible for the Northwest region of the United States, and I think I might have done something bad. When you come in for leniency, the whole corporation has to be behind you. Five, the company has had to have given restitution to any injured parties. And then six, the corporation couldn't have been the leader. So that would be counterintuitive, right? So like, I can't go deliberately enter into this collusive agreement reap all the benefits of that for five years and then be like it's about time that I turn myself in it it has to be more oh you know if I was the one to say to Haley I think I'm going to charge 125 this quarter and then Haley is like hmm yeah if you can do it my company probably can do it and Jason says something similar Jason or Haley would probably be the the right ones to come in not me but what makes this line of work so interesting it's, it's high stakes. I mean, it's as risky as you can get in white collar, in my opinion, because let's say there was an antitrust compliance training. Let's say one of your sales workers hears something at that compliance training and goes to their boss and say, hey, I just heard this in the meeting, but we've been doing X, Y, and Z. Are we okay? Then that person calls up your general counsel, says it. Then the general counsel calls outside antitrust counsel, so like a, a law firm like McGuire Woods, and they've got to make a decision quickly if they think they have a problem. And if they do think they have a problem, they've got to get be the first to get to the DOJ. Because let's say Haley and Jason are the ones that are you know eligible for leniency, and Jason Haley recognizes it one day after Jason. Well, if Jason's counsel moves fast enough, she's out of luck. So she could go knocking on the DOJ's door and say, hey, you know, I think that company X is involved in this criminal conduct, the DOJ might say, we think we've already found out about this. You don't get leniency, and now what have you done? And I'll explain, you don't automatically get leniency, but what have you just done? You've basically just outed yourself, and you've made yourself available to the DOJ as a participant, and that's that's totally risky, right? And you don't automatically get leniency. What you get is a marker, and a marker is a fictional sort of token that says you were the first in and you will be the ones that we work with with full cooperation to bring down the rest of the conspiracy. There are some different variations of, of leniency and with, with type B leniency where you don't necessarily have to tip the government off to conduct they weren't already aware of. There could have already been an investigation that was underway. But for the type of type of leniency that we're just discussing here, particularly this one where you have this sort of prisoner's dilemma of do we go in? Can we get this get out of jail free card? That's the, the traditional type A leniency. I don't think we need to get super into it. We just it might make sense for us to make a clarification just that okay. there are other there are other sorts of leniency out there where you don't have to completely bring unknown conduct or antitrust conduct to the DOJ. But for the purposes of what we're getting at here and, and really what the ICW focuses on, um, it is this sort of prisoner's dilemma of do we go in, try to tip off DOJ with activity that they may not know anything about? And do we risk potentially poking our head up and flagging ourselves if there's already somebody who has a type A marker for leniency or if they're already aware of this and they're not interested in us as a leniency applicant? So I have two questions about what you both just talked about with the leniency program. First of all, why would someone enter into a 
cartel and then decide later to turn themselves in and want to be a part of the leniency program? Is it because they, like you said earlier, they weren't aware that they were doing it? And then second question was, are the enforcers really concerned with small companies? So if you and I were fixing prices for like cupcakes and it was just us two, that's a lot different than some multi-international corporation, like multi-corporations that are fixing prices for like all of their products that millions of consumers use on a daily basis. Yeah, both good questions. Um, I think to your first question, why would someone enter, why would someone agree to something illegal and then come in and say, and rat themselves out more or less and seek a marker for leniency? I think you're absolutely right. I think it's because they did not recognize the conduct as, as illegal at the time. And that goes back to our discussion at the beginning that antitrust laws aren't intuitive. You know, so if you have two cupcake shops, you know, Jason and I were talking about this earlier. If you have two cupcake shops in the city and Jason's cupcake shop is on the north side of town and mine's on the south side of town, well, that's business, small business owners supporting small business owners, right? I'll stay out of your territory. I'll just, I'll just hang out in the south loop. That seems like good business, and it's very difficult for a lot of salespeople in general, regardless of the sophistication of the, of the company, to recognize that that's illegal and criminally enforceable. Um, So yes, I think it's once they have reason to believe that what they've been doing is illegal. I'm aware of situations where even when the company goes in for leniency, once you start like unpacking that and talking to their people, a lot of these people are like, I'm sorry, why are you talking to me? And what's the problem here? You know, so even if there's a corporate decision to go in for leniency, once you start doing the internal investigation that you have to do and talking to all of those people, there's still a lack of awareness. Quick pitch for antitrust compliance, like most companies do need antitrust compliance training because that's the only way that they, and I'm sure too in their internal you know, antitrust or legal departments, they'll figure that out too, but that's the only way to educate your people on how to stay compliant. Um, and to your question of are enforcers interested in the little guy, I think the company line would be yes. <laughs> Um, it's just, I'm sure this is an Amy Gilbert take. This is not an official take. I think it's probably just triaging what's most important and what's impacting the market the most. I don't know if you'd agree with that. I, I totally agree. I think a perfect example of DOJ going after the little guy are the, I mean, it must be hundreds now of the mortgage foreclosure investigations that DOJ has launched, which is you know, in the wake of what happened in 08 and 09, a bunch of these houses went up for foreclosure auctions. And it was really common for the folks bidding on those particular homes to get together and basically come to an agreement beforehand who was going to win the auction. They would kind of pass money around in smoky back rooms afterwards. This was happening all over the country. It wasn't um, a national conspiracy. It's just something that people thought was maybe good business practices or something they could get away with. Um, and there's been a ton of these investigations now, and that's th- those aren't big fish, but they're they're catching the eye of DOJ. One thing, just to pitch to pitch the the conference a little bit more, this is something that they're really thinking about. I mean, why on earth would anybody even be incentivized to do this in the first place? Um, and they ABA ICW, or excuse me, the American Bar Association brought in a Harvard professor, Dr. Eugene Soltz, who recently wrote a book, Why They Do It Inside the Mind of a White-Collar Criminal, and he discussed some of the incentives that these people have on what might make white-collar crime worth it. It 
really exactly Amy's point. They're very good at justifying their behavior for some greater, greater social good. Uh, you know, maybe I do know it's wrong to carve up the market for cupcakes in Chicago, but I'm supporting small business. You know, maybe I know it is wrong to set the price for computer chips that are going to go in cell phones around the world, but I'm, I'm driving innovation. So there's a justification that goes in it that way, and maybe that justification just exists on an individual level, but then once it spills over and the company realizes, oh my God, we might be facing criminal and civil fines in the United States and in Colombia and in Japan and in Europe, suddenly then there's a pretty good incentive to try and get as good of a deal as you possibly can and not wind up in five, six, seven years worth of litigation. Uh, Jason mentioned the professor, the Harvard professor who came in and his book is titled... I'm going to butcher this. I want to but I believe it's called Why They Do It Inside the Mind of a White-Collar Criminal. And one of the examples, back to this whole like lack of intuition about what's illegal and what's not, he said, you know, if I said in this room right now with 500 people for the next hour, murder is legal, you can get away with it, you will not be prosecuted. He's like, I would venture, barring some outrageous circumstance that all of you would still not murder the person next to you because you know that it's wrong. It's not the same way with white collar crimes. You don't have, you, there's nothing innately inside you that, that says this is wrong. And to Jason's point, there's often a countervailing benefit. There's often a justification for it. So that's, that's the interesting part of this is trying to get companies on board with the fact that what they're doing is wrong. That's largely sometimes the biggest challenge if you have an outside if you have an outside law firm coming in and saying what you did is bad and we've got to move fast or you're going to be on the hook for criminal fines and jail time do you know how hard it is to convince your client to do something that risky when what they think they've done is not wrong it's an interesting case study in client management it's an interesting case study in how do you educate your people on the front end to deter things like this in the first place how do you know, though, if there are hundreds, if not thousands of companies in one of these types of agreements that you'll be the first one? Because you you never know, like, even if you ask, if you ask, then you risk exposing yourself and outing yourself and being like the snitch, I guess, in the situation. If you were to advise a client, how would you do research and d- kind of determine whether or not they should... Um, go to the DOJ and ask for one of these leniency programs. You have a really stilted phone call where you you say, I'm announcing or I represent a company in this particular space. Is there a marker available? And it's a song and dance where you're trying to disclose as little as you can in order to determine if there's a marker available without going so far as saying, hi, I'm Jason Christensen. I re- represent Acme Corporation, and we've been price-fixing uh, jetpacks for the past 20 years. You look at the competing incentives, DOJ is trying to learn, oh, is there somebody else out there that we already in a cartel that we already know about, whereas, and you're trying to give as little information as you can. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's very tricky. Uh, but as far as trying to research in advance, there's really nothing you can do. So domestically, I know, and we had a podcast, I had a, an interview uh, recently with a, our resident antitrust professor, and we were talking about breaking up uh, big tech, which is a popular campaign issue right now, and he was explaining uh, how there's really two main arms of antitrust enforcement in the United States with the DOJ and the FTC, as well as any private suits. 
on the international level, though, if I'm, again, Acme Corporation and I'm selling um, jetpack, I'm colluding in the jetpack industry, am I open to, if I'm not the first in the door, or even if there's a leniency, I can get leniency in the United States, but I'm not going to get leniency in the EU is, you know, I guess my questions are, one, if I am the first in the door in the United States, but not in the EU, is my leniency in the United States going to be honored? And two, is there, given that potential deterrent for a company to come forward to say, you know, how can I be first everywhere? Maybe I should just stay quiet. Is there any talk that you're aware of among um, the international enforcement community to create a singular international governing entity that will go after all international actors? I think you've, you've really hit on the quagmire that you run into as defense counsel. Um, the answer to all your questions, unfortunately, is it depends. Um, even the U.S. alone, if you go in and you seek a marker, you're already setting yourself up to eventually have a follow-on class action by the private bar. Um, and there's certain things you can do to try and limit your exposure there, but if you go and self-report to DOJ, you're pretty much guaranteed that you're going to be defending some class action lawsuits from the private bar later on. So that's part of your analysis, just even here domestically. So the immunity that's granted by the DOJ, it does not extend, it doesn't grant you immunity as well from any private suits? That's correct. And, and there's certain things you can do under ACPERA, which is a piece of litigation, or excuse me, um, which, which is a, a statute that allows um, you to reduce some of your class action exposure if you cooperate with private plaintiffs, um, but it, it, it's not a get-out-of-jail-free card by any means. Just here alone in the U.S., you can see how that gets complicated. The way that the leniency interacts with other jurisdictions and potential private exposure there varies wildly. It depends on the degree to which the U.S. is coordinating its enforcement efforts with that particular jurisdiction, as well as even what sort of class actions might be available totally depends on the jurisdiction, and you have to work really closely with counsel for those jurisdictions in order to weigh those pros and cons. Um, as far as any sort of unified enforcement regime worldwide, uh, there, I would be really surprised if we see that anytime soon. Of course, the enforcers are going to be extremely tight-lipped about their plans. We know that they do coordinate with each other, um, they, and they do to the extent they can get um, some sort of authorization to do so. They will share information with each other or even sometimes you know, coordinate their enforcement efforts to try and you know, perhaps go in and, and raid corporate offices. Um, so there is coordination happening and that's something that in, in many ways the ICW provides them a forum to do that because they're all there at, sitting at the same table. But yeah, as far as a, a global enforcement entity, I, I, I would be really surprised. And at the conference last week, there were enforcers from across the globe, which is also a really unique thing to the antitrust bar. I don't know that there's another legal industry where you can get the top dogs of every enforcer from across the globe in one spot. Um, it feels very like State of the Union address, you know, like you're, that you are getting an address from all of these global enforcers. And what in the sentiment across the board is that they're in constant communication, that they work well together, that they have the same objectives, but in terms of ever unifying it, I'm not sure that that's administrative, administratively feasible. Um, 
and you'll find that different jurisdictions, and this is not necessarily surprising, are in different phases of implementing a leniency policy. So the DOJ's has existed for 20 plus years. Brazil is more in its infancy of implementing the same sort of thing. So as different jurisdictions figure out how it applies in their region, I think you're going to get a little bit of variation. Um, so I don't necessarily think it, it's certainly not uniform across the board now, and I'm not sure how feasible that would be going forward. And to your first point, the bigger the collusive conduct, meaning if it spreads jurisdictions and we're crossing borders, I think it's all the more difficult to make a decision to go in for leniency. Because to your point, you may be the first in the United States, but you, you may not be in Asia or Europe. Um, and I think that that's a, it's a huge consideration that you're ex in protecting yourself on one front, you're exposing yourself on another. And I think that's, again, the tricky the trickiness of this whole thing. And listening to you the way you describe it, it almost seems to me like if I'm general counsel or defense counsel for any one of these corporations, I might advise them to just say, you know, maybe you just sit on this because by going forward, you know, and, and Jason, you talked about, uh, I wasn't even aware that the private class actions could pretty much automatically ensue. The legal fees alone that you're going to be racking up just by trying to do the right thing is there an argument to be made for the fact that even if you want to do the right thing, be quiet because it will just really hurt you financially? And frankly, you're facing fines either way. I mean, is it really fines either way and one hide happens to run the risk of jail time? It's certainly a consideration. Yeah, it's, it depends on your risk profile. And, but yeah, I mean, this discussion of when is it worth it just to kind of lay low and see if this all blows over, it's something that gets discussed and it's something that was on display at the ICW this year and it's something that people consider. Um, I think that gut reaction is something that most general counsels probably have, especially when they're being told, we have to go in and get leniency immediately. Oh, and by the way, we don't have time to conduct a three, four, five month internal investigation and interview 50 people and figure out how deep this goes. Uh, so you're trying to decide really fast. We know that there's this problematic conduct. Do we go in and report and cross our fingers that this isn't a bigger issue than we think it is? You can imagine a scenario that the speed with which you do go to the enforcer varies with the company's own perception of how bad things are, right? So if, if there is an indication, if there's a smoking gun or there are bad documents or whatever, and you know about that already, then you're going to go in really quickly because you know how bad it is. But if it's a situation where you're like, you're just looking at the tip of the iceberg and you don't, in your in the company's gut is that, I don't know that we were all that involved in this. I think we were tangential to whatever was going on. Then, then it's a consideration of maybe we move slower and we take the time to interview people who are most closely involved, we look at documents and all of that does delay. So if you do interview your folks and you do look at documents and it does, it does reveal that, well, now you've wasted time, but the counterbalance is maybe we take a look at our documents and we talk to our people and we're not so sure that we're the big dog here. Like, and maybe, maybe that does weigh in favor of waiting and see how, seeing how it plays out. To Jason's very early point, this is why outside counsel has to be very in tune with the business 
of their client because you have to understand how it would work, who would have been involved, and of course you work hand-in-hand with the in-house legal department, but that's really, really imperative because you need to be able to identify key people and drill down on those sorts of things as expeditiously as possible. One thing I'll note also is that when a company is considering let's say a company goes in to apply for a marker for leniency that company needs independent counsel and each of their people need independent counsel as well because the company has its own interest at heart and may not have executive a b c d etc at heart so everyone needs their own independent counsel and that creates an interesting fabric of Jason is representing company C and I'm representing the executive of that company and there might be many of me and all of us as outside counsel have to work together towards more or less a common goal of leniency right but that that brings in and we could talk about this for days that brings in interesting considerations of what does company counsel and individual counsel share where are the privilege lines things like that with everything that you've both mentioned, um, it kind of makes me wonder why there aren't more um, antitrust compliance training programs, especially at larger companies, because the amount of fees, like Matt has mentioned, and just bad PR and ruining your reputa- reputation, your company, and arguably sometimes your life um, that could result from some of this is a little bit frightening. So just generally speaking, what do you feel like the trends are in cartel enforcement these days? I know that briefly, Jason, you have discussed no poach agreements. We've kind of done a deep dive in the leniency program, which I'm glad we did because most people don't know anything about that and it's very interesting. But if you were to give a quick overview on no poach agreements, since I have read a little bit about that um, in my past career in HR, I think listeners would be interested in that as well. Sure. Uh, no poach agreements are certainly the coup de jour these days, um, whether I shouldn't speak for the DOJ, but the, the sense that we get is that state attorney general, DOJ, and the private bar are all looking into no poach agreements pretty heavily. Um, in short, what a no poach agreement is, and I mentioned this earlier in the podcast, it's an agreement between two companies not to hire each other's employees or not to solicit for hire each other's employees. And the thinking behind this and why that's problematic is not only does it remove free choice of employees and where they may or may not work, but it also has a downward effect on wages. Because if I'm not competing for your employees, you're not competing for mine, there's no incentive for me to raise what I'm paying those employees in order to get better people through the door. Um, It has the same effect on certain HR benefits as well. Um, So in, oh, it must have been, what, 2014, 2015, I should know, DOJ and uh, a number of private plaintiffs got involved in this litigation out west for a lot of high-tech companies um, who had these sorts of agreements, pretty carte blanche in their uh, HR policies not to hire each other's engineers. And it eventually led to a ton of fines, settlements north of hundreds of millions of dollars. And the DOJ eventually released in, I believe it was October of 2016, an announcement on their view of these no poach agreements. It was directed at HR professionals and described the DOJ's view that these sorts of no poach agreements are extremely problematic 
and they're going to begin prosecuting them criminally if they see one that's particularly problematic. Now, the DOJ hasn't done that yet. We haven't seen anybody actually put in jail for this, but they are looking. And it was reiterated a number of times at the ICW that this remains an enforcement priority for them. So I, I don't expect those to go away anytime soon. It's funny you say that. I, before coming to law school, I spent four years working. I founded and ran my own tech startup, so I was readily familiar with that. I was not running a Facebook mm-hmm. necessarily, uh, but I, I was familiar with that. But the, the other side of that coin is you're, you're the, let's say, COO of a, a Silicon Valley company. I keep losing people because this other company offered the slushy machine and the workstation. Like, <laughs> you know, how many darn perks do I have to offer these people to get them to stay? And so it ends up happening is, you know, you have such a high turnover rate and productivity goes down because you spend so much time onboarding. And so there's, I can at least understand the other side of that corner. Like, maybe we should stop stealing each other's, uh, you know, human capital, <laughs> essentially. And I mean, that's just another great example of justifying what you're doing, right? So sure, I know it's wrong to agree not to steal each other's employees, but I got to do it. Like, I'm I'm wasting so much money in this turnover. I'm training all these employees, so it's worth it. Or I can justify it. And anyone who would look at me would say, well, that makes sense. And the flip side of that coin is you're depriving employees of the best possible working environment they could have, whether it's the slushy machine or full benefits or something like that. So so long as, you know, those high-tech companies keep competing – to get people, that that's better for employees, right? That means either higher wages, better benefits, slushy machine in the break room, that sort of thing. Whatever it is, those benefits go away if we if we if it becomes stagnant and no sure. one's competing any longer. Sure. And steal is one of the first words I search for if I'm looking to see if there's a problematic activity. So I hope you didn't put any of those in your emails. <laughs> no, from all four of my employees or twelve at some point. No. My last question is, I, in my research, I came across something from the Antitrust Institute, and it had a number of um, suggestions as far as, you know, if they were writing the antitrust rules today, how would they be written differently? Uh, I know, again, as I mentioned, we had a professor who's here come on and talk about them and said, you know, a number of these rules are a bit archaic, mm-hmm. um, and if they were just, you know, totally erased and start from scratch, they'd be a little bit more efficient. How would you guys, if you had, you know, your druthers, what would you do differently in structuring the laws that exist today and how to make them more efficient as far as enforcement as also easier for companies to adapt to and understand? Sure. I don't know that I necessarily have an answer of how I would change the law or the way things are enforced. I think I would go back to Haley's point earlier. I think we need to do more on the deterrence side of things. I think you find that these large criminal conspiracies probably could have been deterred, though there are going to be scenarios where this was totally intentional and very concrete and a formalized agreement. But in most instances, you have unsophisticated employees or even sophisticated employees in sophisticated or unsophisticated industries who are just doing what's best for business. And what's best for business is intuitive to a lot of folks because it's out there. People talk about it. You go to, even if you don't go to business school, you just know that higher profits is better. Um, So you just know those sorts of things in a way that anti-competitive behavior. So 
strip away antitrust laws, what's what's literally on the books, take that all away and just talk about what's anti-competitive behavior, I don't think that's out in the marketplace nearly as much. And I think this no poach thing is helpful in that regard because people get, everyone's been an employee, right? Everyone knows that they want to be have competitive wages and competitive benefits and working environment and things like that. So the no poach thing actually makes sense to them. But other anti-competitive behavior, I just don't think that nomenclature is out there and I don't think that people have that intuition. And I think that's probably the common thread of a theme for this entire podcast. And antitrust compliance training will do that on the corporate level, but there should be something else out there. You know, when I say antitrust, people think I just like bust up monopolies and that's not what we do, right? Um, Some people do that, but not me. So I I don't know how to do that. It just needs, whether it's in school or, you know, at the university level, certainly in law school, I just don't think that that piece is as commonplace or recognizable. Yeah, I totally agree. People just don't know what they're doing is wrong. It's hard to make people know what the law is. Um, I have no suggestions on how we might do that other than increased compliance seminars, education. Um, I would say that I think... It might be helpful if, and we actually managed to go an entire podcast without talking about per se or rule of reason violations. It's um, all civil, though. It, which is all civil. That's right. But it, but it, even in that realm, I think there's often this concern. It's that's not set out in the antitrust laws. What is going to be a per se violation? Which is just if you do this, it's problematic 100 percent of the time. It's all set out in case law. Or is it going to be subject to the rule of reason, which? requires you to consider some of these pro-competitive benefits that Amy talked about. That's all set out in case law, and it is pretty clear now um, from case law which qualifies for each, but in some cases it is still unclear. It's still being worked out in the no-poach context, and certainly Congress isn't going to go and rewrite the Sherman Act to make it clear which one is which, but I think if there was more clarity on that sometimes, it'd be easier to make these sort of hard decisions on, is this something that is absolutely going to land us with an antitrust suit, or is this something that's possibly defensible? Because if you don't know which world you're playing in, it can make it more difficult. Well, I think that wraps up our conversation today. Amy and Jason, thank you so much for taking the time to come in and speak with Matt and I today. I know that as big law associates, time is money and money is time. So we really appreciate you taking the time to um, share a lot of information with us and our listeners, which I think everyone will find very interesting. Thank you for having us. Yeah, thank you. That's all from us here at The Podvocate. Thank you again for joining us today. Our team wants to hear from you. If there's a topic you want the show to cover, an event you'd like us to address, or just something you're passionate about, please email us at thepodvocate at gmail.com. Our producer is Jim Allrutz. Our senior editor is Radhika Sutherland. Our associate editors are Haley Burridge and Jake Kupferman. And our editor-in-chief is Matt Doran. Special thank you to Dean Michael Kaufman for providing us the resources and support to make the show possible. And thank you to our predecessors, the Dialogue De Novo team, for launching a podcast on our campus. From Loyola University Chicago School of Law, this has been The Podcast.